Welcome back to another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip. I'm your host, Benji Backer, president and founder of the Conservation Coalition, and I have the distinct honor of being next to two incredible leaders here in the state of Florida, Julie Raithmel, who happens to be the executive director of Audubon Florida, one of our favorite partners to work with, and Michael Dooner, who has done pretty much everything uh, within forestry here in the state of Florida. I'd love for you to just start out by introducing yourselves and then telling us where we are. Michael? Oh. Guys first. Normally, normally we uh, we we allow the ladies to go first. But uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to uh, join you. I'm Michael Dooner, president of Southern Forestry Consultants and Wiregrass Ecological Associates, uh, and I'm uh, past president of the Florida Forestry Association, and I've been a forester here in this area for 40 years and. Uh, unfortunately uh, lived through uh, Hurricane Michael, so uh, here to talk about that some too. Amazing. Julie? Great. And I'm Julie Raithmel. Like you said, I'm the executive director of Audubon Florida. We're the state's oldest statewide conservation organization, and uh, we focus on water, wildlife, public lands, climate, of course, and also land use. And I actually co-chair the Florida Working Forest Partnership, which Mm. is something that the Florida Forestry Association is a big part of. And that's because at Audubon, we recognize that forest lands are really, really important to both the health of our ecosystems as well as the health of our planet. So we're really excited to be here today on the eastern side of the Apalachicola River in the Florida Panhandle. Well, and Julie, you focus a lot on forests in a state that has climate change affecting their forests in a different way than maybe out west, where you know a lot of people know about forest fires right now. Can you talk a little bit about how climate change has impacted the forests here in Florida and why that's so important for people to understand in addition to what's happening out west. Absolutely. I think that the most visible way that climate is affecting our forests in Florida, frankly, was Hurricane Michael two years ago. You know, we've just passed the two-year anniversary of that, and many people around the country likely saw the aerial footage of entire forests just laid flat by the eye wall of the storm. And those flattened forests don't just represent damaged ecosystems, but they, they represent devastated livelihoods. And for us, that's a real concern because forest lands buffer our water. They help to sequester carbon as we fight climate change. And the last thing that we want to see happen is those folks saying, gosh, I don't think I want to put trees back on that land. Instead, maybe I should put rooftops instead. That is a lose-lose situation for Florida and for forestry. And it's one reason why we work so closely together. Yeah, and Michael, I mean, we're sitting here, standing here in, you know, what used to be a really strong forest, and it was impacted by climate change and, and, and Hurricane Michael in a way that you said you've never seen before, and now, you know, behind us, they're replanting, but it, it was completely decimated. What was going through Hurricane Michael like for the people here locally on the Panhandle, and can you explain how it was something that they had never seen before and you had never seen before? Well, it is literally the, the one of the strongest hurricanes to ever hit the mainland of the country. So, um, and, and that's going back you know, decades and decades, uh, maybe even a hundred years. Um, we've never seen the, the devastation of, 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 of what happened during Hurricane Michael. Never even really thought it was possible. We've lived through 
you know, category ones and twos and threes and, 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 and maybe even a, a category four here and there. But um, the magnitude of devastation that, that we lived through and Hurricane Michael came in during the daylight hours, a lot of storms for some reason seem to make landfall at, at night and you, you know, you really don't live through that, that devastation um, it's just so hard to describe when you, you are literally watching trees broken in half and flying by and houses flying by and vehicles being blown and just that level of intensity that you literally live by and watch and, and, and experience, you know, for hours at a time. And Michael was a very slow moving storm. So we literally spent the entire day watching all this happen. Um, and, and people's homes were destroyed while they were in them. Um, there, there's no way to describe the feeling of, of helplessness and uh, um, just being overwhelmed by, by, by an event. When, you're, when you have your home, your shelter, you, you know, your, your safe place, destroyed while you're in it um, and and then to to go out the next even that afternoon in some places but the next day and literally not even be able to get to to the street if you lived in a in an urban area you know getting out of the front door if you still had a front door uh, not being able to go anywhere and for those of us that work in the natural resource field um, literally taking weeks in some cases to be able to have roads cleared and access to places that we knew needed attention and to not be able to get there not be able to assess the damages it was just incredible and never hope to never live through something like that again but but an incredible devastating experience nonetheless i mean we can see the landscape damage behind us, right? And I know it's been cleared since then, but you can see that there's not, you know, a group of trees right behind us as there once were. Can you also talk about some of the economic damages that occurred from that storm that were also unprecedented? Yes, from the, purely from the forestry side, the, the timber side of the forest, the commercial timber side of the forest, um, people had planted cultivated, managed their crop, their timber crop for years, sometimes 30 and 40 and 50 years of, of tender loving care and had derived very little income out of the forest uh, through that time period and had kind of always thought of it as, as uh, their retirement account or their rainy day fund, so to speak. And of course, a lot of people do harvest and grow trees and, and realized income. But on the day that Hurricane Michael hit, everybody's forest was was a savings account mm. of some sort. Um, and, and it had been growing value. And, um, and, and in almost all cases, that value was lowered by about 90% and in some cases 100%. There was no value left in the forest. So literally decades of, of savings 
turned into to a complete, um, uh, completely washed away, completely blown away. And it's three, what we learned is three million, roughly three million acres, you know, here just in the state of Florida from that damage. Julie, turning it back to you and, and kind of the climate lens for a second, you know, what would you say was the impact of climate change on a storm like Hurricane Michael? And how did climate change play a role in it? Well, I think that we're all looking at climate change and the effects that it's having on increased storm frequency, intensity, and size. And that has a lot of people thinking twice about, you know, what does the future hold for these kinds of economic investments in our landscape? The really sad thing about that is at the same time that working forests are vulnerable to climate change, they're also part of our solution. Mm. You know, while people are putting trees in the ground and harvesting them for an economic goal, they're also serving a purpose for the public trust. They're helping us to sequester that very carbon that we know is driving climate change. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of people would say, you know, this hurricane would have happened for the people who would say this hurricane would have happened either way, right? That this is just part of the natural cycle and this is just a bad storm. There are a lot of people who said that in 2018 with this storm, and I'm sure there are still a lot of people who say that today. What, what would your response be to people who say that? I would say come tell that to somebody who lost their entire retirement income. Right. Um, you know, this is where people in the central panhandle put their resources. And, you know, like Michael was saying earlier, it's not just a bunch of large industrial corporate forests. A lot of them are are small forests that people are using for their nest egg and for their future and to pay for their kids' college funds. And, and that has turned their worlds upside down. You know, the question is, do they have another 35 years to replant in the same crop and start over again? Or do we have to worry about them switching to a different land use that has a faster yield and has a much harder impact on the landscape and frankly doesn't help us meet the threat of climate change? Yeah, I think one of the most alarming things as we kind of walked earlier was hearing that the people who own you know these pieces of land don't really want to rebuild because they're, they're just worried that the same thing is going to happen again or happen in a worse way. And if they didn't feel like climate change is playing a role in that and it was just a random storm, I don't think the reaction would be that way. I think many of them would with help. Yeah. I mean, I, I, do, I don't think people just go into this and maybe I'm speaking out of turn. So, Michael, you can feel free to stop me. But I, I think people invest in this kind of land use because they care about it, right. too. I mean, private landowners, they love their land right. and foresters, they love their trees. But, you know, the question is, is can they afford to go back into it? And that's why you know, recovery funding after storms is so incredibly important. And it's why it's, you know, something that Audubon, you know, joined the Florida Forestry Association in advocating for. We had people say to us, you know, why do you care that, you know, we are we are helping to recover, you know, what is a, a private industry? And it's because that private industry also has public benefits that we all really depend upon. Well, and Michael, you said earlier, two years later, over two years have passed and that recovery help hasn't come to these communities. How hard has that been for the local landowners and why do you think it occurred that way where we're still waiting two years later? Yeah, and, and in answering that question, let, let me uh, 
add a little bit to what Julie just said and, and you had, um, had, in my question yeah had, had said to her too was the landowner base here this is not corporate forestry here these these are literally two-thirds to three-quarters of our landowners of the forest uh, in Florida and in the southeastern United States uh, are non-industrial private forest owners just like you and me and Julie they own 40 acres or 100 acres maybe they're fortunate enough to own you know 800 acres but they're, they're small landowners and these trees this timber was their 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 retirement in many cases or it's a crop that's only harvested a few times during their entire life so the um, the recovery and that decision to invest in another crop that frankly you might not ever benefit from certainly your heirs will or you would hope that it doesn't get wiped out by another storm. Um, that is a tough decision to, to know when you've lost everything or a lot of everything that you had, you know, where do you get the funding? Where, do, where does that come from? You certainly have, and, and these landowners do love the land and, and they don't want to see it mismanaged or unmanaged. Um, and they're committed to doing the right thing but if they literally cannot afford it they they just they just can't can't do it and it's unfortunate that the um the recovery efforts have taken this long uh, in the form of getting money into the hands the money that congress appropriated uh within a year after the storm and here now we're we're over two years beyond the storm and there's been no money uh, get into the hands of, of owners yet um, and that's made people put off good decisions uh, and and uh, not implement good plans and in some cases abandon those plans all together um, and, and, and we don't know what the impact will be frankly but um, we have seen people decide not to do uh, reforestation not to do uh, restoration and um, and it is tied a lot of that tied to the lack of money flowing from from the federal government down um, well and that's something that we feel like we've seen as we've traveled across the country for the electric election road trip is that you have all these communities that are seeing the impacts of climate change and their voices really aren't heard a lot of the time and you know, the conversation oftentimes is at a macro level, which is really important to talk about climate change in a macro sense, but these communities are already being hit by it now. And these, you know, localities are, are part of, the, need to be part of the solution now, but they're also being hit by the problem right now. And it sounds like, you know, the fact that these communities couldn't be supported after one of the worst hurricanes in history, even within two years is, a, it's a failure of kind of how we're dealing with this problem because not only are these communities not being supported but to your point now they're not reforesting and that has a negative impact on climate and it just is kind of like making this issue 
worse and kicking that can down the road because honestly, we're not focused enough on the tangible aspects of what's going on right now in these communities. Well, and, and I would say that it's it's not just the, the investment in reacting to the impact, right. but it's also Being the investment proactive. in preparing. Mm-hmm. So it's investing now in resilience. It's investing now in mitigation and making sure that we are sequestering as much carbon as we can and being as efficient as we can be. And the beauty of this is that it's not a red policy or a blue policy, it's a green policy. And I mean that in two ways. It's environmentally green, it's also economically green. You know, mm-hmm. these are things that are creating jobs. They are helping to drive local economies. And frankly, especially with some of the high tech opportunities with renewable energy, these are creating some of the jobs of the future for the kids in these communities who want to stay in these places, but they need the kinds of jobs that will help them afford to do that. So on a more widened scale, you're fighting each and every day for climate reform in the state of Florida. Why is Florida so important to unlocking climate action and what progress are you seeing? Well, I think, you know, Florida is not just politically important, but it's got a huge population. Um, It's also been a, a heart of innovation for its entire history. I mean, We put men on the moon for heaven's sake. You know, surely we can science our way out of this too, but we need to get started. And that's where we think it's really exciting, especially to see uh, private sector partnerships, like working with the foresters on sequestration, looking at some of the large announcements that we've gotten from some of the state's biggest utilities about industrial scale solar. Um, You know, they're really investing in this new technology that's helping us to plan for a better future, not just for our state, but for our kids. Well, and for us as the Conservation Coalition, that's why we're investing so heavily in Florida is because while there is, you know, while there should be some sort of, you know, definite impatience and urgency of the issue, there's also a lot of hope here in the state of Florida. And partially that's because you guys are seeing the effects firsthand and you, you need to act now in a way that maybe other places aren't seeing as strong of effects now. But you have bipartisan leadership not as much as you need, but you do have some bipartisan leadership. You are seeing the companies and utilities uh, in this state start to scale their clean energy operations. And it's less about, is climate change real in this state right now? It's like, how do we deal with it? And how can, for both of you, how can Florida serve as a model for the rest of the country? And I guess I'll start with you, Michael. How can Florida serve as as, as, as a model for the rest of the country when it comes to fighting climate change and looking at solutions? Well, I, I would start with the, um, a, as an example, the one that's near and dear to my heart is the Working Forest Partnership. Uh, that is a, an, a, an occasion or a, an effort that was started about 10 years ago um, with, with all our partners in the forest. And by that, I mean Audubon and the Thousand Friends of Florida and the Water Management Districts and the DEP and the Park Service and and the Nature Conservancy and and just you know 25 or 30 different groups who represent obviously their own interest in the forest and the land of Florida but it but it was um, where we brought people together and we do it regularly to discuss the overall goals of the group and there's some states where there's still a lot of infighting 
amongst the users of the forest. Hmm. In Florida, I think we, we can honestly say that we've set an example where we've brought the producers and the users, whether they're intensive or extensive or or whether they just in, enjoy the forest or derive some commercial product out of the forest, we've brought them all together for 10 years and we sit down every year uh, and we and we talk to each other now, not just once a year, but we can literally pick up the phone and talk to each other. And that's a good example that I think other states could and should build all, off of. It's still difficult to get the, the politicians to gather in a room and have those same type of honest and open discussions. But if we can do it at the local level where the passions are generally truer and more honest and, and we can work together, I, I, I just think that's a great model to work from. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the beauty of Florida also is that I, I think Floridians we live closer to the land than a lot of the country does. And by that, I don't just mean that, that we're rural because there's a big part of Florida that's urban. But what I mean is the environment's our economy in Florida. Right. You know, if the environment goes south, everyone suffers, whether they are an avid outdoors person or a AC devotee, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we have, we have a long history in Florida of the environment not being a partisan issue. And that's why, you know, I can say definitively that, you know, our senior senator from Florida, Marco Rubio, recognizes that in Miami Beach on some blue sky days, you have water in the streets, you know, and our governor in Tallahassee, Governor DeSantis, recognizes that it's time for us to have, um, you know, a, a climate change czar, a resiliency czar, recognizing that we can we can deal with this, but we have to start now. Yeah. And, and that. That bipartisanship that, again, still needs to grow, but that is here, that isn't here mm -hmm. in other states, or isn't there in other states, is inspiring. And I think it can serve as a model nationally of how we can move this issue yeah. forward. For us, you know, we engage a lot of, you know, independent to conservative-leaning mm -hmm. people. And they're so enthusiastic about working on climate change here in Florida in a way that we don't see in other places as strongly. And I think that the way that the governor and you know the set, you know, the state house and the state senate that are working across party lines to get things done you know the way that that's being handled needs to be scaled nationally it obviously still needs to be scaled it needs here needs to be scaled in florida too yep. but I, I think the other thing is we're really lucky to have such great leadership on local levels too right. i mean we've had more than a decade of really innovative leadership from you know miami-dade county for example yeah. and the lower southeast coast and a lot of local governments in florida in particular have been leading the way for years and now the state government is is picking up some of those lessons learned and it's the opportunity for us to scale it now. Right. We need more of that. And I think your your point of how it affects tourism, the economic development, the energy side of things, it's it's such an important issue to Florida in a way that cannot be emphasized enough because like you said, this this is the environment is all you know, that's what Florida's known for is its environment, whether that's the Everglades or the beautiful beaches here in the panhandle or, or anything in between, that is where People, that's why people come to Florida. That's why people move here. That's why people you know, are tourists here. And if we're not protecting it, we're not protecting the future of the state. So 
we need to wrap up, unfortunately. But before we've gone on to the next podcast, uh, for every podcast, we've asked each one of the amazing people that we've interviewed what they hope we learn over the course of the rest of the trip. We still have two and a half weeks left. And we'll start with you, Julie. What do you hope we see over the rest of our road trip? Um, I just think it's really reaffirming to see how Americans care so deeply about climate change and how innovative they are. I think that as many different kinds of places that we have in our country, we're also seeing solutions popping up everywhere. And really the barrier is being able to share those at scale. And so I can't wait to see some of the great examples that you find in other places. And hopefully we can plagiarize wantonly from them here in Florida. I hope you'll take from us one of our very best solutions, one of our very best examples, which is, you know, our private forest industry here and um, just how critical it is to our wildlife and our water and our climate in Florida. Thank you. Michael? Well, that's that's hard to top. Uh, so I'll just, <laughs> I'll just try to... Um, I think what I hope you'll learn and and I hope others will learn too is is to to listen to the people that own the land Mm. Um, and in the southeastern United States it is a different land ownership pattern a lot more private landowners uh, family farms and that sort of thing Um, and I, I think that it's important to listen to them they do love the land and they love it for a variety of reasons and and they are committed to using it wisely to conserving it always and to leaving it in better shape than than they found it and and that gets lost in a lot of the the um, rhetoric in other places um they're not the best dressed people they they you know don't have the most money they don't have the most influence but they're some of the wisest and most committed people that, that you'll ever find. And, and I think if, if you, if all of us can remember to listen to them and, and, and um, take from them their commitment to something that not, doesn't always return them the greatest financial gain, but, but it has so many other values, I think we'd all do a better job at, at what we're trying to accomplish if we listen to those that own the land. I love that statement because the most inspiring stories that we've found across the country have come from communities that oftentimes aren't seen as part of the answer. Dairy farms in the Midwest or, you know, sustainable forestry folks on the Pacific Northwest to the story we saw here today. We need to stand up for obviously this issue on a macro level, but we also need to stand up for the individuals that are impacted most and hear what they're going through and also hear how we can work with them on the solutions. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I want to thank you, Julie, and and Beth and the entire Audubon Florida team for helping set this up and for being such incredible partners in the state and for working so hard to find climate solutions on the educational and the political level and also to you, Michael, for the solutions that you're working on through the incredible forestry community that you have here in the state of Florida. It's an honor to have interviewed you both, and and I'm really excited for this episode to drop. And for our viewers uh, of the Electric Election Road Trip, we are off to Alabama next. We're so glad to have stopped here in Florida, and we can't wait to see you on the next episode of the Electric Election Road Trip.